right, guys. Um, tell you what, let's uh, let's jump on to First Peter chapter one this morning. We're gonna we're gonna jump off with this passage of scripture as we look at traces of the chosen one. I I felt like it was, you know, there's so many different directions you can go this time of year, and so many different messages that um, we could look at and I could preach. Uh, and one of the things I've just always been so fascinated with is, is the messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and, and how we see this, this picture, this prophetic puzzle picture uh, kind of beginning to take shape as you work your way through Scripture, through Revelation. Uh, when I say Revelation, I mean just the revealed Word of God. So you begin working from the beginning all the way to the coming of Jesus. And, you know, for many of the disciples who were alive when Jesus came into the world and he began ministering and he began proving himself to be Messiah. I mean, they had all of these aha moments. They're like, oh, my goodness. Now I get it. Now I understand what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. Now I understand what was being con uh, conveyed to me in the book of Genesis. Now I understand what all of the prophets were, were pointing us to. And, and these, these things began to come alive in, in, in real time for them. And they were discovering this all at once. I mean, you can imagine. And then obviously... After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he, he returns from the dead, and he spends 40 days with his disciples on the earth. And can you imagine what those, what those times were like, sitting with the risen Lord Jesus and asking him all of these questions? And he's, he's explaining the scriptures. He's, he's unpacking all of these mysteries to the disciples. I mean, you think about the two, uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and their hearts are burning within their chest, and... And, and they take this long walk down this dirt road, and Jesus, which they didn't know at the time, was the risen Jesus. But he's, he's explaining everything from Moses and the prophets to them about how all of these things must have taken place. They had to be fulfilled in the, in the exact manner in which they were fulfilled. And so it's like we are looking back on all of these things. And I think sometimes we take that for granted, to be quite honest. I take it for granted because... You see, we kind of we kind of have at least at least when it comes to the first coming of Jesus. Let me just say that much. We have the box topped to the puzzle. Anybody anybody a puzzle maker out there? A couple of you. Who's got a puzzle on a table somewhere in their house right now? Got a few of you, right? Okay. Wouldn't it be a cruel joke if somebody slipped in there and stole the top? You'd be lost, wouldn't you? You always have to go back to the what? To that box top. Because it is the complete picture. And so we take for granted because we have the box top. We, we can go back looking at the, the, the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures, and we can say, oh yeah, of course Jesus was born in Bethlehem of a virgin, and, and he performed all these miracles, and he was going to be crucified and resurrected from the dead. Sure, all the scriptures talk about that. But you see, we take that for granted because... The heroes of our faith and the forefathers of our faith and the prophets of old, you see, they did not have that box top. They only had a few what? A few pieces. And they would take this piece and they would put it over here and they would take this piece and they would put it over here. And they were trying to fit it all together to the best of their ability to what they had at their disposal at the time. But they didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. Now, I will say in regard to Jesus' second coming, we don't have the 
full box top either. There's still some things that we're a little bit unclear about as well, right? That's why there's so much diversity in eschatology or the teaching of the end times, the second coming of Christ. That's why there's so much diversity with that because we're still in a little bit of a, of a mystery about how all those events are going to unfold when he comes again, right? And so just kind of, that kind of helps us understand, well, just like we don't clearly see everything exactly the way we, we should or could with the second coming of Jesus, put yourself in the shoes of the forefathers of the faith and the prophets of old. They're looking ahead to the first coming of Jesus, the coming of Messiah, and they're trying to fit all this stuff together, okay? And so what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just, I just want to kind of build this profile of the Messiah. I want to work through the scriptures and just really kind of look at the, the primary uh, characteristics of who the Messiah had to be, where he came from, what he was going to be like, what he came to do, all of these things, and how the scriptures are, it progressively reveal these things as we go throughout the text, leading up to the very day that Jesus, and as, as the book of Galatians, Paul says in, in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, right? At just the right time, in God's time. The Son of God was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those of us who are under the law, and that he might make us sons and daughters of God. And so that's what I want to do today is as we kind of begin to build this prophetic profile. And I'm going to give you some puzzle pieces, and then next week we'll start from there, and we'll keep building until finally we get to the box top. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I think this is a great place to jump off because it just gives us a really good context for how the saints of old were thinking about these things before the coming, before the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 10. 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, listen to the word, they searched and inquired carefully, right? So they're, they're doing an investigation. They're, they're trying to do everything they can to figure this stuff out. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person, okay, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted there it is, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the sub subsequent glories, okay? So what is this saying? It's saying that the saints of old, the prophets of old, they're, they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they're investigating, they're searching, they're looking through the scriptures, they're trying to figure this thing out, and the Spirit has laid it upon their heart that they knew that there was a Messiah to come, they knew some details about his life, they knew a little bit about what it was going to be like, they didn't have all the answers, but man, they're enthusiastic, they're, they're in hopeful expectation, they're they're diligently searching the scriptures because they want to know. They want to figure this out. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. All right, what is he saying there? He's saying most of the prophets and the forefathers of our faith, they understood this one general concept. Is that they're looking down the corridor of time and they know a Messiah is coming. But he's more than likely not going to come in their what? In their lifetime. Abraham, he knew the Lord. The gospel was preached to Abraham in advance. 
He could see it from afar, but he didn't quite get to experience it like the disciples did. David and Moses and Elijah and all the Isaiah and the prophets. So they're, they're looking down the quarter of time. They understand Messiah is coming, but they knew it at least enough that he's not going to come more than likely in our lifetime, but it's for a future generation. And that's why Jesus came along and he would say something like this to his disciples. He said, he said that, that the prophets and the kings long to see the things that you see and they long to hear the things that you hear, but they did not get the chance to see them. And to hear them. But you, my disciples, my hard-headed, stubborn, often faithless disciples, right? You're getting to see all of this happen. Everything that was promised, you're getting to see it happen right before your what? Very own eyes. And that's why the witness of the, of the disciples is so important. Because if you listen to Paul and, and you listen to John and you listen to Peter, they're always talking about this Jesus, this Messiah, the one that we have what? Seen with our own eyes, heard with our own ears. We've actually handled and touched him, embraced him. We're witnesses. We're eyewitnesses to his coming. What a special privilege that they had. So the prophets of old understood this. Back to verse 12. So they were, they, it was revealed that they were serving not themselves but you, okay, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which the angels, even the angels, long, they desire to look into these things. Isn't that amazing? Even the angelic realm, these heavenly sons of God, they are like fascinated with this whole concept that the son of God, the king of heaven, the creator of the universe would so choose to wrap himself in human flesh. I'm telling you, that is that's fascinating to them. They can't wrap their minds around it. That God would go to that extreme, to that extent, to save a bunch of sinners made of dust. And yet that's the whole story of the gospel. That's the whole story of redemption. That's the story of Christmas. And so we're starting to, to see that as we jump off from 1 Peter, we're going we're gonna to work our way through some of the, the most important prophecies that highlight and begin to detail who this chosen one really is. It has been said that the Holy Spirit has woven a scarlet thread throughout all of the scriptures, and it leads us all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. And so, yes, some of these things had a, had a, a kind of a, a shadow around them, that they were not 100% clear. There was some mystery surrounding the, the coming of the, of the birth of Jesus Christ. One reason I think God shrouded some of these prophecies in some ambiguity and some mystery is because he knew that there's an enemy who's also making his move. The enemy knows the scripture better than any of us. So he's studying, see, not only the angels, the good angels are looking into the things of God, but Satan and his angels are also studying the scriptures because they're trying to get their game plan together because they have a plan, and their plan was to kill the Son of God, which they thought they what? They thought they did. We'll get to that in just a minute. And so you can see how important this, this thread is running through scripture, and we trace it, we begin to pull on that scarlet thread, and it's on every single page. Everywhere in scripture, you see it show up. And so who is this, this chosen one? And the reason I use the word chosen one, because we, we use the word 
um, Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, Hamashiach, which is the Messiah. Okay, that's what we, we talk about, the Messiah, right? He is the, he is the anointed one. That's another word for Messiah, anointed. But I like the word chosen one because here's what I want you to understand, guys. There can only be one chosen one. You hear me? This is a unique office. This is a unique individual. There are not multiple messiahs. There are not multiple saviors. There's only what? There's only one who fits the profile. And that we know him now. We know, look again, we're looking back. We got the box top. We know who it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus the Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth. We know that. So who is he? He's the central character of the word of God. He's the greatest hero of human history. He's the full and pure expression of God in the flesh. He's the expression of God's truth and love. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's he's our blessed hope. And the Bible says that all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so as we look through the scriptures together, I just I want you to try your best to put yourself in the shoes of those who are looking forward to this time. And they don't have all the answers and they don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. Now. We know that the best place to start this investigation or this this journey as we trace this thread through scripture is in the book of Genesis. And so let's look there. Let's let's look in Genesis chapter three together. From the very beginning of the book, we, we, we begin to get a. A glimpse, and this is this is often called the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. It's not a lot of detail. It only gives us a hint, but it's very important nonetheless. So this is kind of where I think that thread begins, right? This is that first puzzle piece. Look at what it says in Genesis 3.15. So I'll tell you what, back up to 14. The Lord said to the serpent, so now we're we're uh, post-fall here. Adam and Eve have transgressed. They're having to stand before God. They're having to give an account for what they did. Listen to what the Lord says to the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15. He's still talking to the serpent. And I will put enmity. What, does anybody know what that word means, enmity? It means hostility or, or a simple way, there's a war. Don't we always talk about spiritual warfare? This is where it originates, right? There's going to be what? Warfare, hostility, enmity, hatred, opposition, whatever you want to say. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Okay, wow. So, so now it's Satan against Eve. That's an interesting thing to think about because in the context, Eve is standing right here. But it's not just Eve. We'll see that here in just a minute. But at least from the beginning, he's saying, I'm going to put this war between you, Satan, and between 
you were, uh, between you and the woman, and look, look what he says, and between your offspring, so apparently Satan has offspring, seed, children, however you want to put it, and between her offspring, okay? So now we have a war between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. Now look at what, how the language changes in the very next phrase. He, all of a sudden now we get a, a better glimpse. He, masculine singular pronoun. Masculine singular pronoun. So now who are we looking for? We're looking for what? A man. He. Doesn't tell us who he is. It just says what? He. Look at what it says. He shall crush your head. Not good news for who? For Satan. So don't you know that has always been in the back of the devil's mind that there's a man, and at this time he doesn't know who he's going to be either. But he knows there's coming a man that's going to what? Crush his head one day. Not good news for Satan, good news for us. He shall crush your head, but you will bruise his heels. You'll, you'll get a bite in. You'll get a strike in. You'll deliver a blow. But in the process, what's going to happen to your head? You're going to get crushed, right? So this is kind of the first picture that we see here from this traces of the chosen one. So here's what I want to share with you. The chosen one would be the son of man and the seed of the woman. He would be the son of man and the seed of the woman. Now, this prophecy emphasizes the humanity of the Savior. The humanity of the Savior. I don't think we often, I don't want to speak for you. I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I take for granted the reality that God could have taken on any form in the universe. He could have become any type of creature that he wanted to become. And he became a what? He became a man. He entered into humanity. You know what that means, guys? That means that there is something significant, profoundly significant about the human race. That means we matter to God. If you don't hear anything else, we're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But if you don't hear anything else, if you're struggling right now with self-worth or feelings of discouragement and doubt, or maybe you don't feel like anybody else cares about you, I want you to hear, I want you to hear me today. The, the creator of the universe, God the Son, chose to become a man, to become part of humanity. Because we what? We matter. Something is significant. He, he is very concerned about the human race. That's important for us. We need to remember that, okay? So here we see in this prophecy that the, that the, the Messiah, this chosen one, he would belong to the human race. Now, we don't know much else about that. But he would become part of this sons of Adam, if you will, okay? And we're all sons of Adam, if you don't know that, right? Adam and Eve, first parents, every generation born after that, we are sons of Adam by nature. Jesus was born into that, okay? And so that, again, shows how significant it was. Now, the, the scriptures talk a lot about the Messiah Jesus being the second Adam, 
You see, our, our first father, Adam, he was our representative. He represented the entire human race, okay, in every future generation. And he, he blew it. He did not represent us well. He, he sinned. He transgressed. He, he, he cast the earth into, he cast all of creation into a curse. And I know we like to beat up on Adam, but I want to promise you that if I were there, then I would have what? I would have done the same thing. Okay? I'm not any better than Adam, even though we like to point the finger. But at the end of the day, he's failed us. He's failed the human race. He's failed God. He broke God's commandment. So Jesus is the second Adam. The reason he has to come is to basically make right everything that Adam messed up. Okay? And that's another aspect of this whole bigger story of the gospel. And so Jesus came to, uh, in, in human form, he came to pass the test. Adam failed the test. He came to fulfill all righteousness. Adam did not fulfill righteousness. He came to overcome temptation. Adam gave in to temptation. He came to identify with our weaknesses. He came to give his life as a sacrifice. And ultimately, he came to restore everything, all of creation, that had been lost under Adam's headship. Okay? Now, I want you to flip with me to Hebrews 2, because this will kind of help us unpack a little bit more about what this means, that Jesus was the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, but his humanity is what we're talking about right now, okay? Now, remember, Jesus is unique. There's nobody else like him. I've already established that. There's only one chosen one. There's only one anointed one. There's only one truly Messiah Savior. He's, he's unique. That's why it says that God so loved the world that he gave his what? One and only son. This is a unique individual. Okay? There's nobody else like him. Because we try to make up terms like this to explain Jesus. Well, he was truly God, and he was truly what? Man. He was the God man. Well, if you can explain that to me, I'd, I'd love to hear it because, I, you know, it's one of those things we just can't fully wrap our minds around. But we know it's true. He was human. He was born of the human race, okay? He had a human mother. We're going to see that here in just a second. So this is emphasizing his humanity. So when you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, let me find my, find my book here. I want you to read this with me because this, I think, really, this really gives the best explanation, I think, the most comprehensive explanation about why Jesus had to become a man, why he had to become human, okay? Hebrews 2, y'all look at this with me, verse 5. I'm going to read through this. Stick with me. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him. Didn't I just talk about that? That, we, that he's even mindful of us. Or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, okay? This is that the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet. Y'all tracking with me? 
Because, you know, Jesus came the first time and he did come to bring the kingdom. And so in one sense, the kingdom is already here because we're now his children. And now we've been brought into his kingdom by faith. But the ultimate fulfillment of his kingdom is not what? It's not yet happened. So it's already here, but not yet fulfilled. That's what he's saying here. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Check box number one. Why did Jesus have to become a man? Because he had to what? He had to die. Because only through the shedding of blood is the remission of sin. Only through a perfect sacrifice can we be reconciled to God. Now, there's only one problem with that. There's only one person who's perfect. Who's that? It's Jesus. So if, if Jesus is God and he's the only one that's perfect, then how does God die? Well, the only way God can die is by becoming a what? Becoming a man. He had to take on flesh. He had to take on mortality. He had to take on human form. So he resolved this whole thing. How does God die? Well, he becomes a man. He has to die. That's the reason he was born. He was born in the shadow of the cross. We see that, and so that's what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 2. Now, keep reading with me. This is so interesting. For it was fitting, verse 10, that he for whom and by whom all things exist, he's the creator, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is who? The devil. What did we just read in Genesis 3.15? He will crush your head. I like doing that. Wake you up. He will destroy the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now we're going to talk about Abraham next. But look at what it says. Salvation is for the offspring of Abraham. It's for humanity, but more specifically it's for those who are now offspring of who? Abraham. We're going to see why, why that matters next. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because, listen to what he says, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Guys, let me tell you something. This is your practical 101 message of encouragement today. You see, we need a God who can identify with us. Think about it. If God is so far removed and he's never experienced anything wrong and he's living up in his holy ivory tower in the palace of heaven, he's never experienced any pain, he doesn't know what it's like to have to struggle, he doesn't know what it's like to suffer, he's never been sick, he lives forever, he's in the beauty and the presence and peace and joy and bliss of all eternity, what kind of a God can identify with us like that? It's kind of hard for us to comprehend, right? He, he seems so far removed, so unlike anything that, we're, that we are and the things that we're going through. And yet, did our God remain removed from us in heaven? What did he do? He humbled himself. 
he came to us. He limited himself. He, he put himself in human form. He took on the form of a servant. This is another aspect of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus came in the form of a man, in the likeness of a servant. He did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. That is the essence of the kingdom of God. If you want to be a kingdom citizen in God's kingdom, here's what should be the definition of your life. You should be someone who what? Who serves others. Because when we serve other people humbly and caringly and compassionately, with grace and mercy, guess what? We are being just like who? Just like Jesus. We're bringing the kingdom of God to that person. And so, if you haven't heard anything else that I've said today, here's what I need you to hear. Because everybody out here is suffering, hurting, struggling, fearing, doubting, anxious, you name it. We all have our problems. We all have our issues. We're all having our struggles. The good news is we have a God who can identify with us. Why? Because he's been there and done that. Don't you know? Don't you know, like, when you're talking to somebody and you have a problem and that person has no, no way to identify with your problem, you know, and you're trying to explain to them your burden, but they don't really get it because they've never what? It's never experienced that. But then you find somebody who's been through the exact same problem or exact same struggle that you've had. Maybe they beat cancer and you're going through cancer treatments. Or maybe they've been through a divorce and you're going through a divorce. Or whatever it may be. And you go and talk to that person and they understand what you're going through. Why? Because they've been there and done that. They identify with you. They're like, yeah, I know exactly how you're feeling. I felt the exact same way. Guess what, guys? That's who Jesus is to us. He identifies with us. Listen to this. There's such comfort in knowing that our creator was willing to humble himself, enter our creation, take on the form of a servant, came to serve so that he could identify with us in our weakness. He could sympathize with us in our suffering. So some of you may be suffering psychologically, emotionally, physically. Well, guess what? Your God knows what you're going through. Why? Because he what? He suffered. He suffered more than anybody. So you can go straight to him. He is our high priest. That's why it says he's our sympathetic high priest. Because whatever it is that we're going through, we can say, Lord, you hear my heart. I'm hurting. I need you. He's like, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm right here with you. I've been there. I know it. Just trust me. I'm here with you. I'm going to carry you through. It's going to be okay. I promise you. I got you. That's who our God is. Because he understands us. Because he became one of us. It's an amazing concept. He, who is truly God... He truly knows how we feel and what we're going through because he experienced firsthand the pain of loss and betrayal and suffering and even what? Death. He tasted death for everyone. So that now on the day that I face death, I don't have to be afraid. And we're all going to face it, guys. And we're all going to be on that deathbed one day. And guess what? I'm going to be just talking to Jesus. Lord, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's about to happen, but you've tasted death. You know exactly how this feels. So, Lord, just carry me right on through the door. Just take me on to the other side. Just, just carry me, Lord. You got me. I know it. I'm going to be with you. You see how that makes a difference? This makes a huge difference. And so the, the, the message of this, guys, I know it's take a little more time because I think this is the most important part of this whole message, just to be honest with you is that we have a sympathetic Savior and a high priest and a, and, a, and a Messiah who knows us, he identifies with us, and he can help you. 
Because he was tempted in every single way, but he was without what? He was without sin. So if you're facing temptation right now, Jesus is like, I know what you're going through. And I can help you what? Over, overcome that. This is the amazing thing about the humanity of Jesus. All right. Now let's talk briefly about the seed of the woman. What is this business about the seed of the woman? You see, God has used some amazing women of faith historically. If you go throughout the scriptures, there are so many amazing women of faith that God used to accomplish his purposes. I think about somebody like Sarah, who supernaturally, I believe she conceived Isaac well past the age of childbearing. Isaac is this son of promise. He's this beloved son. There's all kind of pictures of Jesus wrapped up in that whole story with Sarah, the, the, the woman giving birth to Isaac. But if you, you keep reading through the scriptures, you find out in Isaiah chapter 7, there's another prophecy. Then it says this. Listen, it says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So now we have a more complete picture. What's this idea with the seed of the woman? I'm just going to try to break it down with you real quick. Look at Luke chapter 1 with me. I know we got to... We got to go, but I want to I look at Luke 1 real quick. Look at Luke 1. What is this idea about the seed of the woman? Remember, there's this war between the woman and the serpent, her offspring and his. Now, in this seed war, if you trace that all the way through Scripture, you know what you see? You see all kinds of attempts by the devil and his followers to kill the line of the Messiah. It happened in the flood, before the flood. It happened with Abraham and, and his wife. It happened with Moses and the, and the babies in Egypt. What did Pharaoh do to all the children, in, the Hebrew children in Egypt? Threw them in the Nile, killing all the baby boys. Why the boys? Because he, remember, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head. It had to be a, a what? A man. It had to be a, a singular man. He's killing the baby boys in Egypt. Now we fast forward to the Magi and Herod. Herod hears about the coming of the Messiah. He sends his troops to Bethlehem. What does he do in Bethlehem? He kills all the what? Baby boys. Why the boys? It's the seed war. That's what's happening. Satan knows that this Messiah is going to be born. He's going to crush me. He's going to kill me. Not if I what? Kill him first. That's what this whole thing's about. Now look at Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, tell you what, skip down to 30. The angel said to her, verse uh, 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord your God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said, How will this be since I am a virgin remember Isaiah 7 just told us a virgin will conceive look at what he says the angel said the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of God real simply I got to move on the seed of the woman means this that the Messiah would not have an earthly father he had an earthly mother. 23 chromosomes came from Mary. We know biology. The other 23 chromosomes have to come from where? From the father, right? 23 and 23, 46 chromosomes, got a new individual. 
Jesus didn't have 23 chromosomes coming from an earthly father. Joseph was not his biological father. Mary gave him 23 chromosomes. Where did the other half come from? From the Holy Spirit. So now you have divine DNA merged with human DNA, and that's why Jesus is the one and only unique, truly God, truly man. He is the seed of the what? Of the woman. That's what that whole thing is all about. You could go days talking about all that, but I'm going to move on. The second thing is that the chosen one would be the promised son of Abraham. Now, I touched on that just a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to not spend a whole lot of time here. We've been studying through the life of Abraham here at this campus. It's been really a good study. And if you remember the promise to God to Abraham, he said, Abraham, through your offspring... And he's telling him this before he even has any children, right? He's saying, through your son, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be what? They're going to be blessed. Okay? And so now we're starting to narrow. So now we just went from a, a, a male individual, he, who's going to be born of a virgin. We, we knew that much. But now we narrow the focus. He's going to be coming from the family of who? Abraham. Now the focus gets to narrow in a little bit. Now from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants, this is why the enemy has been so much targeting those people, the people of Israel historically, because he knew as well that his Messiah, the Messiah, his enemy, was going to come from Abraham. Okay? Listen to what Paul says about Abraham. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say to seeds, plural, but to your seed, meaning one, who is Christ. So Paul tells us, who is the promised seed of Abraham? Who is it? Jesus Christ. Jesus had to be the son, a descendant of who? Abraham. If you open up the Gospel of Matthew, the very first thing you read is, this is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. He had to be a descendant of Abraham. Well, guess what? I'm not a descendant of Abraham. We just read in Hebrews chapter 2 that only the offspring of Abraham are benefit from salvation. So how do I become one of the sons of Abraham? By what? Adoption. By faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says. Look, understand those who have faith are sons of Abraham. Isn't this awesome? The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he foretold the gospel to Abraham, saying all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So now by faith, an old, a Gentile like me who has no claim to the land, no claim to the promises, no claim to the family of God, by faith in Jesus, I'm what? Grafted in. I'm brought in to the people of Israel. I'm brought in to the family of faith. I'm brought in as a son of Abraham. Isn't that awesome that we get to have that? And so the last thing I want to share with you is that we have the son of man that his humanity, the seed of the woman, his virgin birth, the son of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a grandson named Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. So we know that Messiah had to come from this larger nation or people of Israel. Now flip to Numbers 24, and we're going to camp out here for our last few minutes together as we look at the very final puzzle piece to at least this part of the picture. Numbers chapter 24. Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Now look at what he says 
in Numbers 24. This is a prophet named Balaam. He's really a mercenary, but he's, he prophetically spoke on behalf of Israel. Listen to Numbers 24. I'm just going to read somewhere around verse 15. Look at what it says. Look at verse 17. I'm just going to stop there. Start there. Numbers 24, verse 17. Look at what it says. I see him. Oh, there's the, ma- the singular masculine pronoun again, right? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not what? He's not near. Again, he's, he's seeing something in the distance. He can see this Savior figure, but he can't completely make it out. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the scepter will rise out of Israel, and he shall crush the forehead of Moab and break all, break down all the sons of Sheth. And he goes on to say in verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. Now, if we talked about the humanity of Jesus today, which is so very important, we need a God who identifies with us in our weaknesses. But you know what? If Jesus was just another human being like all of us, could he really save us? He wouldn't be able to do any better saving us than we could save ourselves. So he had to be more than a man. He had to be what? He had to be God. And when this prophecy came from Balaam's mouth, he said, I see him, I behold him. What's coming from Jacob? A star. A star. What do you think about when you think about a star? Where is the location of a star? In heaven. What's the appearance of a star? Bright and glorious. You see, if if we've looked at the humanity of Jesus, you see, now we're getting another picture that he's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born as a son of Abraham, but he's going to come from where? He's going to come from heaven. He's going to be as glorious as a what? As a star. As a matter of fact, the stars are talked about in Scripture all throughout as being the angels, divine beings. These are beings that are far removed. They're in heaven. They're glorious. They're light-bearing beings. All of these things. So now we see a more complete picture that he is just, not just a man. He is a man, but he's more than a man. He is well, he's also what? He is God in human form. So this is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. The chosen one would be a star. From Jacob, he would come down from heaven as the son of God. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Isn't that awesome? The son of God, the star of heaven, left his glory to become a son of man so that we, mere mortal men, sons of men, could become what? Sons of God, like the angels. This beautiful reversal of redemption. It's an amazing picture. And if you picked up on the language of this prophecy, now we see even a more complete picture where he's going to crush the head of his enemies, right? Isn't that something we've talked about this whole message? He will crush the head of the snake. He will crush the head of the enemy. Matter of fact, in 1 John, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So at Jesus' death and his burial and through his resurrection, he crushed the head of the snake. Now, the kingdom is not fully come yet, 
We're still in a little bit of a waiting period. But don't, don't make any mistake about it, guys. Our enemy, the devil, Satan, he is a defeated what? He's a defeated foe. He's already been defeated, okay? He knows what his um, future holds. But he's just trying to do as much damage and destruction as he can until he is finally cast completely away, okay? Now, here's the last thing I want to share with you, and i got to grab this, this picture over here because this is something that I thought was interesting. In our office, in our staff meeting, we have this picture. Anybody ever seen this before? I think it was back in the days when we did a church directory. Church directory is an, an anathema in our staff language for some reason. It's like, will we ever do another church directory? And everybody's like, absolutely not. Apparently, these things are not fun. I don't know. I haven't been here for your church directories. But this is a cool picture. It's hanging up in our office. And this got me thinking. I was thinking about this last night. I look at this picture all the time, and I think it's pretty neat. So I don't know if you can see from here, but this obviously is a representation of who? Of Jesus, right? Can anybody see what makes up this picture? It's all your individual pictures. The, the photographer took all the individual pictures of Christ Church, all your little directory pictures, put them together in this mosaic, and together it forms the box top. The picture of who? What I want to share with you guys is, is I'm going to ask our praise team to go ahead and come back up as we, as we close this out. Is that the gospel tells us that Jesus came to ransom a people for his own possession from every what? Every tribe and nation and tongue and people on the earth. And this, this beautiful display of glory from people from all over the world, from every color, from every socioeconomic background, male and female, rich and poor, it doesn't matter. He came to save us and to bring us into his kingdom. And when we all are put together, we bear a beautiful, glorious reflection of who? Of Jesus Christ. Why is this puzzle picture important? Let me tell you something. It's because your life matters. You are part of this what? This picture. You're part of this story. Sometimes you get caught up in the busyness of life and the mundane and the routine, and you start to ask yourself, what am I even doing? What am I here for? What's this life really all about? Hey, guys, never let that cross your mind. You are here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Your life matters. You're part of the bigger puzzle picture. You're part of the bigger story. God has given you grace. He's given you salvation. He's brought you into relationship through Jesus Christ. He has given you a testimony, and your story is bigger. Is a, is a bigger part of his what? His story. This is what's so awesome about these, these pictures. Is that your pic many of you, your pictures are on here. Isn't that awesome? Amen. That is beautiful. Now, what are we going to do with it? All of that I just shared with you tonight, today. What's the point? I'll give you one challenge. The Christmas season is all, has always been a very big opportunity for God's people to be open in sharing their what? Sharing your what? Your faith. Because whether secular or religious or whatever, 
you got, you see, unfortunately now Christmas has become something that it never probably should have ever been to begin with, but you still have a little bit of Jesus kind of sprinkled in, right? I mean, that's kind of where we are. It's the, the consumer material, you know, hustle and bustle and all the other things, but you still get a little Jesus. And even when you say Merry Christmas, you at least got his name in there, right? My encouragement to you is that why would we let another Christmas season pass us by when we exchange gifts that we... Who remembers even what they got last year? I don't. But you know something you will never forget? If you will open your mouth and share the good news of the gospel, share your testimony, tell somebody about the real reason for the season, tell somebody about Jesus Christ, be evangelistic in how you talk to people, and if you would lead somebody to faith in Jesus Christ this Christmas season, I promise you, you will never forget that. That'll be the greatest what? The greatest gift you could ever get yourself or give to anybody else. Amen. So let's be more evangelistic. Let's don't just go through another Christmas season doing all the stuff that we always normally do. Let's stop, be sensitive, be, be observant, talk to people, open your mouth, share your testimony, tell them about Jesus. However you got to do it, let the Holy Spirit lead you in that, guys. But I promise you, you won't regret it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, again, for just the opportunity to share your word and to know that you are faithful. I thank you that you give us a, a part to play in this greater story. I thank you that our life matters and that you proved that by coming to die on the cross for us. I thank you that you adopted us into your family and we are called your children, sons and daughters of the king. I thank you that, Lord, you've given us life, but Lord, it was not for us to hold on to. It was not for us to... To, to, to keep hidden, Lord, but you've given us salvation to tell the good news to others, to lead them out of darkness into your glorious light. And Lord, we are broken. We're not perfect. But that doesn't matter because you can use us if we're willing. We make ourselves available. And so, Father, for our people here today, I pray that you would open our hearts. You would give us conviction, Lord, to be more intentional as witnesses, because, Lord, you are coming back, and you will return soon. And until that day, Lord, we have a job to do, and we are grateful to do it. And we want to do it for your glory, and it's in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. And all God's people said.